Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. That's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Hello and welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. We are excited for this episode with our special guest, David Waldy. David is the Fierce Empathy Coach, and he's founder of the Ardent Man and Fierce Empathy Solutions. David, welcome to the show, man. How are you? George, Dustin, Brandon, and Justin. Man, that's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so good to see you guys. What's up, fam? Good to see you, man. Glad you're here. So uh, why don't you start by, I know we were talking backstage a little bit, level set for us what it is, uh, you know, Ardent Man is and what the Fierce Empathy uh, Coaching is and the difference yeah. between the two. So Fierce Empathy Solutions is uh, the is really my primary. Um, it's been the primary driver for for business for me and working with entrepreneurs. I've been privileged to work with entrepreneurs from over 40 different countries. And I do a lot in the consulting world around systems, uh, helping them develop uh, their organizational structure, figuring out the different verticals for their sales pipelines. We look at marketing. Really, it's a, I come in and I ask all the questions that nobody wants to ask. And then I um, I, I say, okay, here's here are the different strategies. We need to figure out what's most aligned for you as the individual you as the leader uh, to create what I would call um, a healthy work-life integration. It's uh, it's not so much about balance. It's more about figuring out the leader, whether that is the owner uh, or the entrepreneur. Most often the business has been built uh, in a way that they kind of were just flying by the seat of their pants. And then they get to a point where they're like, hey, I can't really scale and grow this thing. And I don't know why. And so my job is to go in there and to really just look at every single aspect and figure out how do we change this in order for that individual to more effectively lead their team and to be able to to buy their time back, um, which is usually the biggest problem that they have is that their business is completely eating up all their time. Uh, they struggle being present with their families. There's a lot of overwhelm and things like that. And so uh, that's the primary function for Fierce Empathy Solutions. And uh, the reason it's called that is that uh, one of my superpowers is creating an environment where people feel seen, heard, and understood. They, there's a very rapid rapport, but um, the fierce side is where I ask for their permission to ask them um, the tough questions that no one else is asking um, and really, really getting down to what's going on for them as a person when it comes to purpose, when it comes to meaning, when it comes to that alignment and defining who they are, what they want and who they need to become to get it. And so it's an integration of really my background in coaching and then the consulting world. And then the Ardent Man, the Ardent Man is my men's community. It is primarily focused on on really uh, the, the virtues or the pillars. Uh, Ardent is actually an acronym it stands for accountable, responsible, disciplined, empathetic, noble, and true. And so what we do is we focus on the seven sectors of life. We, uh, I've developed kind of uh, frameworks over the past several years. My background, I uh, was a former head trainer for, for Tony Robbins' uh, season of life. And so I got to, to learn a lot of the different tools and strategies and resources. And really in the one-on-one -on -one work, I started to realize like this is something that um, is useful in coaching and consulting, but it's even more useful when you can bring a community of guys together that have aligned values and are willing to put in the work required to become better husbands, better fathers, better leaders. And most of them are entrepreneurial minded. Some of them have their own businesses. Some of them are, are really just wanting to build a nonprofit, starting churches, right? If, uh, if it's a guy who's mission oriented and say, hey, I've got something that's bigger than myself that I wanna create, uh, that's where we, we give him the tools to come in and, and actually uh, develop in every single area and change his habits uh, figure out what needs to to shift in his relationships and how he needs to show up to be present for the people that care about him most and the people that he wants to to serve. That's great, man. 
So appreciate you uh, kind of breaking those down. It sounds like uh, you got a lot of experience and a lot of uh, helpful uh, advice for, for men and fathers out there. So why don't we roll into kind of your background a little bit and let the audience get to know you and kind of, uh, you know, what you've overcome in your life and how it led into running yeah. the different businesses you're doing today. So let's start with kind of your early life a little bit. I know um, kind of sure. in, the, in the little bio you shared with me, there was a, a hint at maybe some uh, some turmoil in your family with a divorce and things like that and kind of just walk us through maybe a little bit of your upbringing and, and then also tell us about your family and you know, how many yeah, kids and all that kind of stuff. For sure. Yeah, so I'm a Kansas farm boy at heart and uh, I grew up actually with uh, an individual that every single one of you, every single person listening to this podcast knows this person. And what was really interesting is, is growing up, I, I was always confused why he could fly and I couldn't. Um, and later on, I would find out that Clark Kent was actually Superman, uh, which was pretty cool being in Kansas. You know, he, he was not too far from Metropolis, but um, you also uh, have the uh, the Winchester brothers from Supernatural. There you go. There you go. So uh, <laughs> I, I like to hang out with superheroes. <laughs> Wait, but he has the glasses, so he can't be a superhero, right? Because his vision isn't perfect. So are you serious? <laughs> Well, Speaking of the glasses, if you guys haven't read the alter ego effect, uh, it's a great book that actually talks about, um, talks about just, those just finished it. Just yep. It's really amazing. Book. Yeah. Todd's a great guy. Um, so my background, I grew up on Kansas farm country. My dad was a veterinarian. Mom was a teacher, uh, grew up very, um, just pretty normal middle class. You know, we, uh, uh, we had a lot of really cool things as a kid that, uh, I did, I, you know, as a kid, you don't really know what, everyone else's life looks like. And so uh, for what it was worth, you know, I felt like I had a really beautiful childhood. Uh, my childhood was basically I was Opie Taylor. Uh, during the summer, I'd wake up, I'd grab my fishing pole, my BB gun, and I'd be gone all day. Like, that's what I would do. It was just my my grandparents had about 100 acres. We lived on five. My cousins lived on five. They lived on five. And we all shared the middle. And so um, I remember the artist who sings it, but it's hunting, fishing, and loving every day. It was basically my life, man. <laughs> and so uh, when I turned, uh, right before I turned uh, 13, sorry, no, yeah, no, right before I turned 14, we moved to, uh, to just outside of Tampa, Florida. Uh, now, at the time, I didn't realize that I, it was actually my parents' last-ditch effort to save their marriage. We didn't know anyone in Florida. Um, my mom had grow, grown up in Key West. My dad was from Kansas. And so what was interesting is where we ended up was just random. Like literally they picked a, a place on the map and said, we need to go somewhere and just try and start over. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't didn't work out, didn't last well uh, or last very long. My parents separated, uh, ended up getting back together. And then by the time that I had graduated, uh, they uh, they were going through through divorce. And so uh, my, my teenage years were very, very tumultuous. Uh, number one, being uprooted from everything you've ever known and going from basically Kansas farm country to where I could, when I moved to Florida, it was suburbia. I mean, I could stick my hand out my window and touch my neighbor. It was culture shock. Right. It was just everything, especially in those formidable years. And um, so when my dad left the first time, uh, it was a really, really challenging scenario because I didn't understand, right? I didn't know if dad like walked out, abandoned. I felt as a kid, I felt abandoned. I felt like my dad, dad abandoned us. Um, and so the first kind of real I guess you'd say a real set of difficulties started showing up in my in my teenage years. Um, my parents had always fought when I was a kid, but I thought, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know what's normal, what's not yeah. normal. And, uh, so there was a lot of 
a lot of unrest, a lot of fear in my home. There's a lot of uh, a lot of the empathy that I carry now today, I think, is because of earlier trauma responses and really having to be hyper focused on every single thing that could go wrong at any moment, looking at all the different variables. But right when um, right after we moved to Florida, when my dad uh, left, there was a father figure who stepped into my life. He was a pastor. And, um, you know, I I found so much of just my identity and his approval. Uh, and, and it was about a year or so where really I was just taken under his wing and everything like that. Uh, and then he sexually violated me and he took advantage of me. And so in the process of feeling like my dad abandoned me, the man who stepped in that I looked at as a father figure took advantage of me. So my paradigm and, and perception of fatherhood was really, was really jacked up for a long time. And so the rest of my high school years uh, were just devoted to doing anything and everything to stay away from home. So every sport that there was, every club that there was, I was in choir, I was in drama, I was the chaplain, I played basketball, I played football, I played tennis, I played golf, I did everything. I was leading worship at church, I started working part-time at the church, anything and everything were seven nights of the week if I could not go home is basically what I did. And, uh, and so when I graduated, I graduated high school with a full ride academic scholarship. I'd worked my butt off, like my parents said, you're supposed to get good grades, get into college and go get a degree. And um, I actually turned down the scholarship and I said, I'm not going to college. This isn't the path for me. And I ended up moving here to South Carolina, which is where I am now to attend an internship program called South Carolina School of, South Carolina School of Leadership, where I was on the fast track to becoming a pastor. So I was taking Bible college classes. I was uh, doing some, some ministry focus. It was all about leadership development, discipleship, community, strengths development. And uh, fast forward uh, a little bit through that season, I very quickly found out that I was... <laughs> I was not cut out for full-time ministry. I love serving the church. I love the church, but I, I did not want to become a pastor. The irony of that is probably very similar to what you guys heard from Cody Jefferson. I think you guys had on is that, yeah. um, that, you know, it was just, it's just a different context. I still feel like I'm pastoring people um, on a daily basis. And it's a beautiful part of what I believe God has blessed me with and the heart that I have. But I knew that I wanted to um, I wanted to go into into business in some way, shape or form, not as an entrepreneur, but I wanted to succeed in business. And I, and I found that through sales. So my first real career job, my corporate career job, I had done really, really well. I built built uh, what I would consider to be semi successful. I was a top 1% producer in a $400 million a year company and uh, I had a knack for sales. I didn't understand it. I didn't feel like a sales guy. I definitely didn't like being labeled a sales guy because my idea of <laughs> sales was was not good. Yep. But I started to discover these things about myself that were gifts and strengths. And through that process, um, I was engaged to be married to a woman that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Uh, two weeks before the wedding, she gave the ring back. I was absolutely destroyed, went into about a six month depression, lost a bunch of weight, <laughs> did the whole revenge body thing. And then um, my wife, my wife, Jesse, we've been married almost 10 years now. Um, I saw her for the first time at our church, even though she'd been there the entire time. But and, and I think everyone listening would know, like, I saw her for the first time. Like, I realized what was in front of me. And you noticed uh, her for the first I noticed time. Her, yeah. yeah. And we were leading worship for our youth group and I asked her out to Waffle House and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so, how that's how every fairy tale is written. 
starts up. Yeah, Waffle man, it's it beautiful. <laughs> and so we, uh, your we sales now, pitch is smooth. Waffle House, very nice. I like exactly. it. <laughs> I'm like, if you go with me to Waffle House, then she's not just going to marry me for my money or whatever. <laughs> Even though I was broke at the time, <laughs> you know. And uh, it was, it was a really hard season because there was there was a bunch of good that happened, but. Uh, essentially what I call my 20s, because um, I'm 33, and I call my 20s were really the dark ages. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know uh, what was right, what was wrong, up and down. My faith really dwindled during that time. And as I was trying to succeed, I ended up achieving the proverbial corporate version of the American dream. I ended up with the glass corner office. I had the company car. I had the six-figure salary. Uh, I had everything that everyone said you're supposed to have to win in America, right? That American dream. And I found myself one day um, standing in front of the mirror with a Glock in my hand, ready to take my life. And I was done. I was about 60 pounds heavier than I am right now. I was having constant suicidal ideation, anxiety attacks, panic attacks. Uh, everyone on the outside, because of my childhood, like I knew how to wear all the masks and I had everyone fooled and everyone thought like, Waldy's winning, right? He's married to a beautiful woman. He's got kids coming and, you know, the the whole American dream. And it all came to a searing halt where I was I was really given a choice. Um, and I feel like God gave me a second chance at life. And that was about five or six years ago now. And since that day, everything in my life, every, I don't even recognize the man that I see in pictures anymore. I, I look at it and it's, it's kind of like the David Goggins stuff. If you guys ever seen that, you see who he is now. And then you see like who he was and you're like, whoa, that's the same person. That's exactly what um, my transformation was like. It was very painful and I'm sure we'll get into it, but it was probably the hardest thing that I've ever done in my entire life. Yeah, man. Well, uh, thanks for just being candid. Uh, Cause I know that some of that stuff is extremely painful to share. Um, but I just want to thank you up front for having the courage to lay it out there. And, uh, you know, so if you're listening to this, I hope that that gives you some inspiration for your own life as well to, uh, you know, it's, it's okay to not be okay. And I think that that's, uh, we, I mean, I, your story, geez, so much I relate to like scary amounts of how similar our lives are. Um, and same thing, right. We're just told our whole lives. You got to just bottle it up and kind of keep a brave face on and just keep hard charging and, that yeah. doesn't work at <laughs> all. Yeah. It's all going to crash. So yeah. thanks. Thanks for upfront, just being uh, very candid about those struggles. So um, before we kind of dive a little bit further into that, so you're married and uh, how many children? So we've got three kids. Jesse three and I kids. will celebrate 10 years in April and we're, uh, we're trying for number four right now, which is all really right. exciting. Um, you know, practice is always fun. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's the best kind of practice. <laughs> it is. And, uh, it's beautiful. My daughter, my daughter, Emmy, she is six. She's in first grade. Uh, she's going to be the president one day. She got a double dose of stubborn from her, uh, my mom or my wife and, and me. Um, and probably for my mom too, it probably came through me too. <laughs> but, and then my son, my middle son, his name is Bear. Bear Daniel, he is gonna turn four in a couple of weeks and he is full blown boy right now. He is chaos, Tasmanian devil. If it can break, I'm gonna break it and I'm gonna push the bounds on everything. And then my, my youngest, he's Leo, uh, Leo David. He will turn two in January and he is having a vocabulary explosion right now and so <laughs> yeah. it's just it's really fun really that's fun. awesome 
<laughs> well, uh, I hope the practice uh, keeps going well and the fourth will be on the way. Me soon, too. But, uh, Me too. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, with, with that, the kind of fun stuff out of the way, if it's okay with you, if we could um, go into a little bit more of, uh, I guess, the trauma would be the way to yeah. put it. Um, I mean, just right up front with being, uh, you know, violated, uh, I can only imagine the the difficulty that you had kind of just in the immediacy of that uh, being a, te a teenager when it happened. Yeah. And, and then also, you know, again, same thing as like guys, like <laughs> how do you even tell anyone about that? And um, yeah. did you immediately start struggling with like depression and things like that then? Or did you kind of so bottle it, it up a, for a while? It was a series of things because especially like in that vulnerable state, it, it was something that was happening that, and, and um, I used to be ashamed to say this. Now I recognize it's just, we all have, when life happens, sometimes you don't have the mental capacity uh, or even the maturity to know how to handle it. And so you just survive. Right. And so for me, especially with him being a, a pastor um, and a father figure in my life, um, I had become convinced that what was happening was supposed to happen and was okay. And so there was effectively a grooming process that had taken place and um, that I didn't, I didn't know when you're, when you're 14 years old, you don't know what grooming is 15 years old. You don't, you don't understand what that is and what that, that means. And um, the reason that it, it kind of happened that way is because with my dad out of the picture and my mom working constantly and me doing everything, um, my mom, knowing that I needed to have a father figure in my life, kind of just entrusted me to him, like I uh, had no problem with me staying over at his house, um, doing everything all the time, taking me on short trips, going to the beach and um, just a lot of things that when you look back, you're like, what? Like, yeah. how, how could this have happened? And, um, yeah. you know, it was there was a lot of um, you mentioned depression. That was really um, that's really where, yes, it entered into my life. It was that uh, there was just this darkness. Um, it didn't, it didn't matter it, when I say I, that's where I really, really learned how to start wearing masks is that I knew how to play the part. I knew how to show up and be the nice guy and the goody two shoes. And, and I was the kid that, uh, you know, followed all the rules and got the good grades and, uh, I didn't do the bad things. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I, it, it was all this stuff, like just trying to attain to this unrealistic standard and not really having permission to be a kid. And um, I think the hardest part for me was that my my parents did end up getting back together temporarily. And I had made a commitment um, because of a series of events. Most of my friends, when I was in high school, most of my friends were about four and five years older than me. So most of them were graduating or when I was getting into like 10th, 11th, 12th grade, they were through college or getting ready to graduate. And the consensus from all of them was do not <laughs> go to college unless you know exactly why you're going and exactly what you want to study. Take a gap year, do something. Don't just go to school to get a to get a degree, because every single one of them was graduating from college with some BS degree, getting a job just to start paying their student loans back. And and so for me at the time, I was just thinking, okay, well, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to listen to the people that are are ahead of me, but I'm also going to take their life advice. And most of them said, don't date in high school. It's the stupidest thing on the planet. Do not, you're not going to talk to 99.9% .9 of these people, maybe one, right? 
And, uh, and so I had made a decision not to date in high school. And there was a day that my parents, they, um, they pulled me into, uh, into their bedroom. And now mind you, I'm leading worship at church. I'm actively engaged. I was going to a Christian school at that time. Like I was, I was doing all the right things. I was trying to be the good kid. My parents pulled me into their room and they said, Davey, I, you know, we, we want to talk to you about something. We're very concerned. Um, you're, you don't seem to be normal. Like most of the guys your age, like you don't want to, to date and stuff like that. And they said, um, they straight up asked me if I was gay. And it was coming from a Judeo-Christian background, evangelical Christian background, um, especially at, at that time. Like, like this is this is early 2000s, mid 2000s. Right. You, you're just. It's a very different landscape today is what I will say. And so for me to have that question, there were two things that happened. Uh, number one, it was the first time that the thought of suicide entered into my world. I was depressed, but it was the first time that, um, and this was actually a little bit, so this would have been about 2006, actually. So um, I was the only freshman in high school with a car, which was kind of cool. I was the oldest freshman. And so I, I worked. And so I, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty cool. I was an old freshman, 16 years old. And uh, I, I remember distinctly that conversation, something in me broke like something literally in me broke from my parents questioning me because of a decision I had made that I thought was stupid and pointless. I didn't want to waste time chasing girls and doing what everything else. And, um, and what was interesting and the reason that that came about that I didn't put two and two together until later is that the kid that would always hang out with us when I was with that pastor, he was a gay kid. And my job was to minister to this kid and to show him the love of Jesus while this other stuff was going on. And so that was part of the conditioning is that why I needed to be with this pastor was because it was my job to minister this kid and bring him to the Lord. And I didn't realize that because of that association, my parents started drawing some, some conclusions about things. And so that confrontation, I remember um, I was 16. I remember pulling out of the driveway in my car and um, I was driving to what's called the, um, the Sunshine Skyway. It's this giant bridge that goes over into St. Petersburg, uh, south of Tampa. And um, it's called the Skyway Bridge now. I think they might have changed the name. And I had every intention of driving off that bridge and ending my life. Because to have your parents ask you that question, uh, number one, it stirred up things inside of me. My own questions being like, well, what if I am? Maybe I am different. Maybe I am like this or whatever. But there was also just this this rage and this anger and this just frustration. Like, how could my parents, like, how could they ask me something like that? And I know that they were probably well-intentioned, right? <laughs> just like most of us parents are when we do stupid things. Uh, but that really set in motion. It's a long, long-winded way of saying that set in motion, uh, just complete identity crisis. Just no idea what way to go, what to do. And um, and it was, it was something that now when I look back on it, it's a weird place to come to where you can hold gratitude for what came out of it, but still wish that it had never happened and still wish, say that you'd, you, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. But I know now that the man that I am today and how I lead and how I see people and how I care and how I create these environments and how I, you know, I've got a lot of weird 
weird gifts and I've never been tested for the ADD, ADHD, or even like the autism stuff, but everything that I've ever read and learned, like there are some things that happened to me back then that happened to all of us back then, right? For anyone listening, like there's stuff that happened to us as kids that the most freeing thing that I have ever found in my life is coming to terms with what happened and being able to release it and say, yeah, this should have never happened but I am simultaneously grateful because it made me into who I am today. And that is a tremendous gift. And it allows me to connect and relate to people in, in ways that I might not otherwise be able to. That yeah, makes a man. lot of sense, uh, David. I mean, wow, what a, what a powerful story. I, I wonder 3% of kids in their twenties, Gen Z now identify as trans queer or something like that compared to about a half a percent, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And I wonder if a lot of that has to do with parents very well-meaning with their 10, 12, 15 year old kids, instead of um, just kind of staying the course. And they say, let's talk about this. Do you think you're gay? Do you think you're the opposite gender? Do you think something like that? And I wonder if some of that well-meaningness has created some depression and some confusion that wasn't there otherwise. I mean, you're a heterosexual male. You don't identify as anything but that. And I, I wonder if by opening that up and asking that question. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there, but it seems like in your situation that did more harm than good. I don't know if you want to speak on that. Yeah, I think it's a very challenging thing for uh, for anyone to navigate. And I don't want to sit here and pretend like I've got all the right answers. I definitely don't. I, I do stupid things as a parent, too. Um, I'm sure everyone of us here could be like, yeah, I've learned some things not to do. And I think it's a challenging it's the challenge of the day and age that we live in. But I will tell you this, the one thing that I think more than anything and why I honor the work that you guys are doing here with this podcast is that I have a core belief that if you can help fathers become the men that they said that they would be, the overwhelming majority of the problems in society will disappear they'll just be gone. Yep. And I think that the core of that, um, Dustin, to your question, the reason that it is so dismantling for relationships and for people is there's, there's two parts. Number one, I think that most people, they don't have any idea who they are. And, and I don't say that as a, you know, in a condemnatory way, I say that because I, I get it. <laughs> like when you don't know who you are, when you don't know what you believe, and you don't know what you want. And the only thing you have in life is a long list of everything that you hate and everything you don't want. You are in a very, very, very dangerous position because almost every single thing that you're going to be doing is projecting insecurity and pain all over everyone else. And so I think that there's a lot of scenarios here that when people are having these conversations, it is parents projecting insecurity because of their the flaws um, that they have not come to terms with. They're, they've not allowed themselves the permission to do the deep work and to come to terms with their humanity, but to have self-empathy and forgive themselves and to really define an aim in life and say, this is the mom that I want to be. This is the dad that I'm going to be, period, end of story, full stop. These are my standards, my non-negotiables, my core values. These are the things that I believe. And adhering to those, I think that is part of this, the systemic problem we have today is people don't know who they are and they don't know what they want and they don't know what they believe. And so all of that pain and that it, it's really just projection uh, gets vomited all over the kids and all over our coworkers and all over everyone around us. And we just see it exacerbated by social media. 
Yeah. And I tell, I tell people all the time, the fights that we're not willing to pick up are the fights that our children have to battle later on. And so we have to, it's a, it's our mission and our job as fathers to fix ourselves before we do anything else uh, and fixing our families. Right. Um, So in discussing that, what are the steps that you take to heal yourself? So the steps to healing uh, I found are, are, are pretty universal, but they're also freaking terrifying. <laughs> uh, I think that a lot of people have this, this assumption that healing is, uh, a, um, it feels nice and it feels good. And I see that that's a lot of what has taken over culture and society today, especially on the more woo-woo movement side, the, you know, on the woke side, is that people that are constantly just looking to heal by feeling good and only finding things that make them feel good, only finding people that make them feel good, only putting themselves in scenarios where they feel safe and they feel like they, there's nothing, there's no friction, right? Zero friction. The, the way that I have, have not only found healing for myself, I will say first and foremost, regardless of any belief systems here, and I'll kind of, I'll, I'll set this aside respectfully because I know everyone believes different things. For me, the core of that is my faith in Jesus. Like that, that's the core of it for me, is that if I'm not rooted and grounded in, in who he says that I am, and I know that and believe it, not just accept it. And that's a, you know, kind of a sidebar is like people are really, really good at accepting things. I can compliment each of you and you might accept it. It doesn't mean you believe it. There's a difference between accepting what someone has said about us and really believing that. And so for me, part of that healing came, it came full stop to recognizing how much my father loves me and how much he has, he has done for me. And in order for me to be, I love, I think Nick said this on a, on a show that you guys had recently, he talked about how, um, how he can't be, the husband, the father, the leader that he needs to be, that his family deserves unless he is fully aligned with who Christ says that he is. And so for me, that was the foundation. From a a practical perspective, the shift for me actually happened uh, when I was standing in front of the mirror, Brandon, to to your question. Um, I have a picture of it and I took the picture of it right after it happened because there was a there was a thought that I had is that I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know when or I don't know where. But in some way shape or form this picture is going to help people heal. Now mind you, I was in the worst depression of my life. I literally I had my hand on the trigger, my finger on the trigger. It's a Glock 43. It's now my wife's gun. We still have it. I thought about getting rid of it, but I moved up to a, a SIG P320, by the way, just for the gun enthusiasts out there. Um, I found that for me, this process of healing came directly through a confrontation that I, I, I heard God's voice. And when I say I he- heard God's voice, I know people might balk at that. Um, I felt him in my bones. And he said some things very, very clearly to me in that moment. He said, David, I love you, but I can't fix this for you. You get to decide, you get to commit, you get to become. There's a reason that I've given you a head and a heart. Use them. And so there was this moment where I just came smashing into the mirror 
where everything that I saw, I hated. I hated the man that I saw in the mirror every single day. I hated how he looked. I hated how he talked. I hated how he smelled. I hated being with this thing, right? And what I realized was that healing was only going to come if I was willing to plunge myself back into the fire. And the only way that I was going to be reforged or remade into the version of me that I wanted to be was with the help of other men who knew what it meant to be men. And that process meant that I had to invite into my life radical accountability. I had to start actively having people who would hold me to a standard because I didn't feel like it in any way, shape or form. I didn't want to be disciplined. I didn't feel like taking responsibility. I did what most, most people tend to do is look for who to blame, right? Look for the excuse, look for the justification, take the easy path, right? And that's the danger, I think, you know, again, this is a little sidebar. It's the danger of the, the society that we've created today where people think that uh, it, that life gets better if, if you just make things easier. And what's ironic is that in virtually every arena of life, the only way that you get better is by committing to some very simple steps and repeating those things over and over and over and over and over again. And that's why it's freaking hard. It's not complicated. It's not something that it takes, uh, you know, there's not 77 steps to break through. It's to me, it comes down to two things. The first one is the word integrity. Most of us have an understanding of the word integrity to mean that if I give my word to each of you, like George, Justin, Brandon, Justin, if I give you guys my word, right, my integrity is now on the line. If I break my word to you, there's going to be a, a, some form of fracturing of trust. There's going to be a fracturing of the respect that, that we had established. And if I do that over and over and over and over again, eventually you're going to not want anything to do with me. In fact, you might intentionally oppose doing anything with me. There will be such a gap in our relationship that it, it can fracture things forever, right? That's why people, <laughs> they have these massive blowups and they never speak to each other again. Well, what happens when it comes to integrity that most people miss is that integrity is a two-sided coin. On one side is our, our, our word to other people. The other side is our word to ourselves. And this is, the, this is the piece that so many of us miss and that I missed for most of my life. That I didn't realize that, that we have the ability to talk to ourselves. Right? Some, of us, some of us have a really nice voice inside and some of us have a very not so nice voice inside. And so who's that other? Who are we having that conversation with? And what I started to realize what there is, there is this duality component of us, right? You think about the angel and the demon, one side or the other, good and the bad, right? Uh, you know, the force and the dark side, right? There's all these juxtapositions all through, you know, and you've got like the Tao, you've got balance, you've got the yin yang. There are so many different symbols that, that encapsulate this, this thing that's going on inside of us. But what I realized was that for integrity, the, the importance of it for me is that I had consistently for a period of years and years and years given my word to myself and broken it over and over and over and over again. And you look at our society and you see people that don't, 
They don't trust anyone. They definitely don't trust themselves. They don't respect anyone. They definitely don't respect themselves. And I think that the core of that is because they are missing one side of integrity, which is keeping your word to yourself. And so when I started keeping my word to myself, and I'm not perfect at it, this is why accountability is so incredibly important. It's why this is what we teach inside the Ardent Man is that I, I can't do this on my own. I can't, right? I am my own worst enemy. And if I'm left to my own devices, I will screw it up. I need someone that stands alongside me that I have given permission to, to say, brother, I, I'm telling you now, you see anything out of alignment from these standards, you have my permission to call me up to that standard. Not just call out. That's another thing. In society, I was like, call everybody out. No, it's calling up to a higher standard. And so for me, I had to do two things. One is I had to get over my feelings, even though I'm a very emotional dude and feelings are my entire world. And it's all of what I work in and emotional intelligence. <laughs> like that's what everything's about feelings. Right. But I had to come to this place where I realized that if I was going to use the head and the heart that God had given me, I needed to learn how to control them. And in order to control them, I needed to understand them. And in order to understand them, I needed to go and find out where they originated and what they came from and how, why I was feeling a certain way. And I had to, I had to become their master where I was the one determining and saying what I was and was not going to do rather than being led by my emotions. Yeah, I think, I think you hit it on the head right there, man, when you're talking about, you know, having a present parent and, and most specifically a present father is what our society needs. And it, we don't stop to think about it. We don't, what's better than one father? It's two. We have not only father, our God, we have our fathers, if we're lucky enough. And if they're passing those traits and those values down to you, you know, stoicism, uh, grit, and all the other things that you spoke about, it equips you to handle challenges and obstacles in a much better way, in a healthier way. And you may not know your identity. Hell, most of us don't in our teenage years in our early 20s hell and even into the <laughs> late 20s and early 30s you know uh but to be found having somebody who is truly present in your life to ground you so that you can have a place to keep your feet on the ground and understand who you are as a core person so that you can figure out what you want next yeah. is so key and critical so yeah i, I appreciate what you said about that and it, it made me think of a phrase tomorrow is the only thing a parent is supposed to live for and that's one of those things, you know, if, if you're living for your children and for tomorrow, for their future, and you're, you're holding them accountable, you're, you're teaching them the values that, that not only you should know as, as a good man, if you are a good man, but the ones that are taught in principle in, in the Bible, I mean, if we follow God's word, we're in a good place and it's, it's, it's a good compass, so to speak. It's having two instead of one. So I don't know, just my thoughts on that, but. I, I appreciate it. what you said, man. That's that's awesome story that you had to share. So thank you. Thank you, Justin. David, I was wondering if you could define uh, fierce empathy for us uh, as it relates yes. to regular empathy. Absolutely. So it's actually the name of a book that I've been working on for the better part of five years. I've thrown out three manuscripts and it pisses me off because it's really, really hard to come up with a distillation of what this, this idea is. And so... I'll give a definition and I'll, I, I want everyone to understand that this, this is something that it, it, it completely depends on the context. But as an overarching concept, if you will, it is creating an environment where another person feels seen, heard, understood, and known. They feel safe. 
They know that you are there, that you love them. But simultaneously, you have the courage to speak the hard truth in love, regardless of whatever outcome may follow. And this is part of why Fierce Empathy Solutions exists, is that part of my gifts are creating these environments where people do feel like I understand them. Because I'm trying more than anything not to give them advice, not to give them counsel. Like I don't consider myself in, in many regards uh, a teacher. My job is I am a professional question asker. Like that's literally what I do. And my job is to help people extract answers from within themselves. And that's one of the most beautiful things that I've seen over the years of doing this work is that the answers are within you. <laughs> you know what you like. The, the hard part is digging down and finding those things. Right. And so most of us don't have people who ask those type of questions. And so fierce empathy in and of itself is saying, I want to create an environment everywhere that I go where people feel seen. They feel heard, they feel loved, they feel understood, they feel known. Like they feel like right now with each uh, each of you right here, that you guys feel, that would be my goal. It's harder on virtual and it's harder in groups, but ultimately, right, can we create that environment where people feel like, okay, this person is safe, they're authentic, they're also kind of, especially as men, like my thing is I always want people to feel safe, but I also want them to, to, to feel the opposite of that. I want them to know that I am I am not a man to be trifled with. Like I'm dangerous, but I'm safe. And I think Aslan is a great example of that from the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not a tame lion, right? You see him cuddled up next to the girls and he's very gentle, but he'll also freaking rip your face off, right? You know, it's one of those things that for me, stepping into that environment, I have to have the courage. And this is the hardest thing I think for, especially for us men, is having the courage to ask for permission to speak the hard truth in love. Say, brother, can, can I hit you with some real talk, right? Can I, can I tell you something that you probably don't wanna hear but you desperately need to hear? Can I have that permission from you? And the moment you have that permission, you take the freaking gloves off. Because the people that we respect the most in our lives, like for many people, it's their grandparents. And what's interesting is about grandma and grandpa, they would tell you like it is. No matter how you feel, they will t tell you straight up, right? And I think there's something to that is that the people that we respect them, we might not like that, that we might not like them even at times. We might get really pissed off at them. We might be so frustrated at them. I've had that happen to me where someone has told me everything that I needed to hear that I did not want to hear and I wanted to punch them in the face. And then I walked away and cooled off me like I came back later and I thanked them and I apologize for being a jerk, right? is that the people that we respect the most are the ones that are willing to tell us what we desperately need to hear that we don't want to hear. And the hard part is, is making sure you have permission to do that. And this is why context is important. Online and comments with strangers, not the place. <laughs> That's not useful. The accountability has to be in the context of relationship and intimacy and trust, right? And what the favorite question that I like to ask when people are talking to me and sharing things is I'm, and I use this with my wife a lot. So husbands, write this one down. If your wife brings you all her problems and everything that's going on and talking about everything, the first thing that you need to do is stop and you need to ask this question. Are you looking for support right now? Or are you looking for solutions? One of my favorite questions, 
not just for, for our wives, but just to ask people in general, because if someone's asking me for solutions, they're probably not going to like what they have to hear, like what I have to say. If someone is looking for support, and George, you mentioned this on a podcast not too long ago, and I love it. I use the exact same example is that sometimes you need to get down in the pit and hold space for somebody and sit there with them. You're not going to stay there, but you get down in that pit. So I'm with you. Let's talk. I'll hold space. I'll listen. Because sometimes that's all that people need. And I think we make the mistake of always assuming, especially as us men, it's my job to fix it. I got to fix it. <laughs> Come up with a solution. And a lot fix of times, right? <laughs> exactly. So are yeah. you looking for support or are you looking for solutions is a powerful question to ask in, in those situations where, um, where you see someone hurting themselves or thinking, you know, limiting beliefs or self-sabotaging or uh, whatever it is, any scenario where you feel like you want to help someone or they come to you with their problems, ask that question. And then if you have permission, that's why it's fierce empathy. You are fiercely committed to doing everything within your power to create this environment and, and having the courage to speak the hard truth in love. Yeah. And just the, the last little thing for like, you know, especially husbands to kind of, uh, you know, word of caution is, you know, everyone takes it differently too, right? You, you have to adapt your style to everyone that you're going to. So even, even two men, right? They could be your yeah. two best friends. They're going to be, have wildly different ways that they receive mm -hmm. your delivery, say yes. the same exact words, but your delivery matters so much too. So yeah. like, that's something to be very cognizant of with everyone you interact with, but especially with your wife. And that's, you know, I'm, Far from perfect at it, but that's something that I work very hard at because it's it's the way in which I deliver. You know, when, when my wife does say she's receptive to having solutions, then then you got to watch how you say. It. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, George, if I can if I can share something that I think everyone will find useful, this was part yeah. of my my studies in behavioral psychology and communication, how humans react from you know not just not just the brain, right, but how um, how we our entire physiology, how we receive and how we give energetically, right? And so when it comes to communication, to your point, I want everyone to write this down, is that words are only 7% of communication. This is why you never argue over text messages or on social media. There is no context, there is no body language, and there is no tone of voice. 38% of communication is tone of voice and 55% is body language. So you literally have 93% of communication being communicated before you even open your mouth. 93%. It means that if your body language and your tone of voice is off, it doesn't matter what you say. You lost. <laughs> You're going to be sleeping on the couch. <laughs> or whatever the scenario is. And so understanding it is about our presence and the energy that we are exuding from our body language and our tone of voice. And those, those numbers are really fascinating because it it's, it's so true. And I love Maya Angelou has a quote that uh, I think a lot of people love to share. And it's powerful. It's like, people will forget what you said. They will forget what you did. They will never forget how you made them feel. And when you understand how powerful your presence is and the energy that you're exuding, you will, you'll slow down a little bit and you'll, actually start to realize how important it is to control your emotions, control your body language, control your tone of voice, and communicate intentionally rather than reactionarily. Yep. That's why it's so important to be emotionally intelligent, right? Like we were talking about. And 
Yeah. And that's such a good point, George. You you have to be so tactful in how you're giving truth and love because, you know, Bible tells us sharp as a serpent, but gentle as a dove. Yeah. And a lot of like I struggled with this. I was the kind of person that was willing to fall on the sword and be the guy that would tell hard truths, but I did not know how to deliver them. And it's, I suffered in relationships for a long time Understatement, because I did not know how to deliver it properly, but you know, through God's wisdom and enough hardship and falling on my face, uh, you know, I figured it out, but and grief from your twin. Yeah. But, yeah. The, the twin tuition. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, am I just learning you two are twins? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Holy cow, this is epic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was last episode. They're both so ugly, it's really hard to tell. <laughs> Here, George, I gotta... All right, I gotta well, Michael, you're hideous, buddy. <laughs> gotta work with hey, guy, so you know? on a serious note, I do want to throw this out there because it's something I wanted to say when, when George said that that profound statement of you know being in that space. Fathers, if you guys are out there and you're feeling that kind of way and you don't have an outlet, I'm sure David or any of us would be more than happy to speak with you and fill that space. So I challenge you guys, if you have something you're holding on to or something you're feeling and you need somebody to listen, please, please, please grab us by the ear. I promise you, we'll, we'll listen to you. And then I take it a step further too. in, in your local area, you got to make a friend. Yeah. You, you yeah. got to b- develop one relationship at least. That can be that right. person for you because like david said the face-to-face matters so much more and you know we'll listen to you and try and help virtually but yeah we're just a guy on the internet to you you know um you got a somebody you can develop a close friendship with in person that's gonna sustain you way more than anything we could say would be yeah and speaking speaking to that that's a big part of why i started the ardent man is we have a vision to mark the lives of four hundred thousand men by the year 2033 and the the core of that has got to be in person. It has to be kneecap to kneecap. It has to be getting around the fire. It has to be getting outdoors together. It has to be actually like real brotherhood. Uh, Virtual is powerful and it's useful. But one of the things that is our priority is saying, how can we as rapidly as possible create these pockets all over the United States where men on a weekly or biweekly basis can actually come together and just be able to share values, right? There's a difference in men getting together. Like the the reason matters. You can get together with your your buddies and have a you know a drink fest. That's fine. You can get together and do some sinister things. You get, but very few environments have I found where it's not just therapy or twelve step program, but it's guys coming together to say we share these values. We are here to improve as husbands, as fathers, as leaders. And we want to mark the lives of every single person that we impact. And so I love that you guys said that. Is that virtual's powerful and it's amazing um but if you can find somebody locally do that and that's that's what we're working towards at the ardent man david so many kids now are seeing more depression we're seeing rates of it skyrocket if you were to have a child who masked their feelings well like you did that wore that mask how as a parent would they see those signs of depression? How would you seek that out to make sure that that's not happening? What What do you wish, say, your parents had said to you instead of what they did say to maybe help with some of that? It's probably above my pay grade, Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're fired. Get out of here. <laughs> no, I think um, it's a really good question. And I think that the, the challenge that we live in today is that 
depression in and of itself is, is, is a massive umbrella term for a lot of things that may or may not be clinical depression. Maybe it's, you know, um, there could be some, some other things going on. And I think as a parent, uh, the way that you are going to have the highest probability of knowing what is going on, particularly as fathers, is how present we are. Like, that's it. It's like when I first started building my businesses, like it, it was number one, I had no freaking idea what I was doing, but I knew that part of what I wanted to create was an opportunity where um, I could I could build an office at home, which is this office here, by the way. This was pre-COVID, so I wanted to come work from home, <laughs> which was, and I wanted to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with my family, and I've been living that for, for almost four years now, is that I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with my kids, with my wife, and that is a non-negotiable to me unless I'm traveling or speaking, doing something like that. It's, it is something that I want to be as present as I possibly can. It doesn't mean that I'm not out working my butt off and like making dreams happen and, and doing all the stuff. But when I am home and there's a good friend of mine, his name's Travis Ritchie. You guys, if you guys know Travis Ritchie, you know him, he's going to be your next guest. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Travis Ritchie, he has this quote that uh, almost every single day it goes through my head because my commute's nice. It's 12 steps right into my house. But in 12 steps, this is what I say. When dad gets home, he sets the tone. And the tone that I want to set when I walk in my home is not when that uh, daddy's exhausted because he had a long freaking day. And as, as you guys know, like for some, some men listening to this, you might have a manual labor job and your body is physically taxed. You might have a job that's more along the lines of what I do, where it is completely emotional and you get to the end of your day and you can't even think straight, right? Because you've been processing and handling so many things. Regardless of what your job is, you will always have the opportunity to justify and excuse your behavior. But if you make the conscious decision and choose, when, when I get home, I set the tone it changes everything. So now my goal is every time I walk through that door, daddy's set in a tone of laughter, of joy, of hugs and kisses, of wrestling on the floor, of doing silly goober stuff. Cause I'm a goober. I, I whew, ask my kids, ask my wife, I'm total dork. And I think that <clears throat> we overcomplicate a lot of these things simply because we are so hyper-focused on problems and saying, how do I fix my finances? And how do I fix my boss? And how do I get, you know, how do I change my marriage? And how do I change my health? And all these things which are tactical and practical, they're useful. All these things are very, very, very important. But more than anything, it is being present. And I think that the follow-up to that, the reason it's so challenging for most men to be fully present is because they don't know how to calm the chaos in the head and the heart. They don't know how to turn it off. They weren't taught anything. We, none of us were taught about emotional intelligence growing up, right? None of us were taught how to regulate emotions. None of us were taught like practical things like, hey, there's this cool thing called box breathing where literally if you do for 60 seconds, you breathe three seconds, four seconds in through your nose, out your mouth, you'll reset your central nervous system and you'll be calm as a butterfly. None of us were taught these things, right? And so when you learn that if you're going to be present and to be able to identify if your kid is depressed, if your kid is dealing with stuff, if they're going to have the ability to feel safe to open up about what's going on without the fear of judgment, without the fear of you flying off the handle, with you reacting emotionally, you doing something that is completely unwarranted. The only way that that happens is learning how to be present. And the way to be present is learning how to control your thoughts. And what thoughts do is a series, right? 
our thoughts always lead to our feelings and our feelings always lead to our actions. So if you're doing stupid stuff, look at your feelings and look at your thoughts and start questioning those and challenging those. There's an incredible book called Loving What Is by Byron Katie. I would recommend every single human being on this planet read. And she has a concept called the work. When you start to do the work, you will start to master your thoughts and your feelings and your entire world will change. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect at it. I am not perfect at it. <laughs> I have my days, but it has created an environment where you can ask my kids and you can ask my wife if I'm present, if I'm available, if I'm there with them rather than just being in the room and completely in another place in my head. I like it, man. Yeah, that's uh, it's a pretty good answer. So I think maybe you were more qualified than you thought you were uh, to take that Absolutely. one. But <clears throat> take it all. Like everything yeah. I say here, go test for yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only thing I would, I would add on to it is um, you have to be comfortable with understanding that you're not going to get everything done. It's impossible. Yeah. You, there will always be more to do. Um, yeah. And I, I'm I'm lucky that in my life I had some really good leaders and mentors who really drilled that into me earlier. And, um, you know, I think that's made a world of difference for me. So take it, you know, self-reflect those listening and watching, um, you know, are you just constantly scrambling to the next task? Are, are your tasks driving you? Is your schedule running you or are you running your schedule? And yeah. for some people, that's literally putting a block of time for family on your schedule if your schedule is that busy. So, yeah. all right, that was, uh, Amazing advice, David. We're trying to be sensitive. We know you're uh, coming up on some time hacks. So we have two final questions really focused on fatherhood. I'll let Justin take away the first one for you. So this is a question we ask every uh, dad that comes on. And it is, what is a core memory or your favorite story since you've become a father that you uh, you want to share? I will say that the core memory for me was, I mean, there's, there's plenty of them. I love them. And the, the hard part is about this too, just a sidebar for everyone listening. If your memory sucks, write it down. Like my memory is horrendous. <laughs> you could ask my wife that too. She was like, where's, where's memory on the planet? I don't remember things, right? Unless I write it down. But this is one that I remember that was literally etched into my, my soul is that, um, when it was really two and i'm trying to think of which one would serve people better um i'll give you the first one and maybe we'll tack on a second the first one was uh was when my daughter was born um i think becoming a father is something that you can't explain to somebody you just can't you, you know and you guys know you know you, you you hold that child and all of a sudden you realize like even though maybe you had a great relationship with your wife um, and your life, you know, you had, you'd learned how selfish you were. You really find out how selfish you are when you have a kid and that'll shift everything. But for me, it was that moment of holding her and just bawling my freaking eyes out being feeling like the most blessed human being on this planet, that this child was mine. And and then it was kind of like a oh crap moment. Like I have to, I have to help her become a functioning adult. <laughs> you know? Oh no, I have a lot of responsibility now. <laughs> so that, and then I think um, another one for me is um, 
actually one that just recently happened that uh, I will remember forever. But I laid down with the boys to take a nap one. Um, this was probably this is like two days ago. My wife was like, I'm not doing naps with the kids today. You take the boys, go upstairs. I'm like, I got it. <laughs> so I take the boys upstairs and um, my bear, my my almost four year old, he leaned over and he he's like, kisses daddy. And so he gave me a kiss on the cheek. And then Leo, he's he's what, 20, 20, 21 months, something like that. He leaned over and did the exact same thing. And then for like the next two minutes, they just attacked me with kisses. Like they would not stop kissing me. And I, I'm dying laughing. We're supposed to be napping and I'm dying laughing. They're laughing. And it was, it was one of those moments where, uh, I know that especially I think for, for, for young, young boys, it, there's a transition where, right. Where that affection is going to change. But at this stage of life, I'm like, <laughs> I'll take it all day. It was freaking amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful, man. Awesome. All right, Brandon. Yeah, that, that's so good. But, but, you know, I had the exact thought when I when I held my baby boy Benjamin for the first time and my daughter Bela, like the first Corinthians uh, thirteen eleven came to mind, which was when I was a child, I spoke as a child and I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So like my selfishness, whether it was gaming and doing me time too much, all that went away uh, mm -hmm. when I became a father. And so I love that 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 was the the core thing that you you immediately thought of fixing, right? Because that's what all dads have to fix when they become dads is your time is now not yours. You you have to devote, I mean, you're already devoting it to your wife. Don't get me wrong if you're doing it right, but but you have to devote to your children too. Yeah. So Absolutely. so that's that's such a, a, a good thing. Um, what was the best advice that was ever given to you that you applied towards fatherhood? Mm. This came from uh, this came from a mentor of mine that marked my life probably more than any other man. He's he's a big part of the reason that I ended up moving to where I am today, and he is the man that before I really reconciled and created like my, my dad and I now we have a beautiful relationship. But before that happened, this man, uh, his name is Darren Heilman. He showed me and lived out and fully embodied the man that I wanted to, to become, right? Not not just, I'm not, I'm not talking about like successing, I'm talking about character qualities, how he interacted, how he would walk into a room, his energy, like how you could feel him, right? He was very much that Aslan personification. I felt completely safe around him, but I also knew like, you stand up straight, you're respectful, like you, you, you toe the line, right? You do the right thing. Right. Um, and he told me this was, we're at this, I, I think it was at this restaurant called Groucho's, which we have here in South Carolina. If you guys ever come up, I'll take you. It's, it's fantastic. But I remember him talking with me about marriage and about how most men, when they get married, right, they, they lose a part of their identity because now they're trying to become something for their wife. And that's a whole layered conversation that we could go into, but suffice it to say that was just the beginning of what he was talking about. And, and he said, he went on to explain that 
what most men do after they're married and they have kind of this, they, they, they stop being the man that they said that they would be because they've now conquered the the queen, right? Like, like they've taken her home. And, and so he said, the next step is when you have children. He said, the biggest mistake that any father can make is putting his children before his wife. And at the time, I had no idea what that meant. And there are probably people listening to this right now that vehemently disagree with that. Now, I'm not talking about like, <laughs> when you've got an 18-month-old who needs a diaper yeah, change. You're not neglecting. You're not neglecting, right? It's not neglecting your children. But that to raise and, and to help these children have the best opportunity for a successful, fulfilled life, a life full of purpose, a life full of meaning, a life full of, full of contribution and productivity. What is modeled between me and my wife is more important than anything else. And if they become the sole focus and we get disconnected, all of our worst fears will be made manifest as they age. Because the relationship that the husband and wife have, and I believe this with everything in me, it is the representation of the heart of God. It is the beauty of masculine and feminine coming together, sparks flying, granted, yes, which is fine, still iron, sharpening iron. The masculine and feminine coming together on the same team, working together on the same goals, supporting, loving, showing affection, arguing well, right? Demonstrating what it looks like for your kids, that when those two are strong, everything else is reinforced. Everything else is strengthened. And I believe that that is that advice that he gave me was basically, you know, is basically don't let your kids become your sole focus. When you have children, your wife still needs to be your priority. And at the end, he said, because there's, there's two things he said, number one, he said, when your kids leave, your wife will still be there. And then the follow-up to that, he said, and there will come a day where either you or your wife die and you need to always remember you are the only person that you are guaranteed to spend the rest of your life with. And so those things of having this healthy relationship with yourself, having and striving for and fighting for, right? He said, this is one, another one-liner from him. He said, family is not something that anyone's born into. It's something you fight to create every single day. And so my wife and I, we have committed to fight together for each other, even though we argue and we, we argue. Like, <laughs> she's also my best friend. I die for that woman. She's a beautiful mother, but I know that my kids cannot take priority over that relationship that she and I have to be strong in order for us to be able to raise them well. It's beautiful, man. And it's, uh, I think, our kids are inherently ingrained to expect that kind of relationship from their parents. And when it's not there, they start to feel the fear and the anxiety. They may not be able to pin it on why, but and I think in, in a way that this again may sound weird to people, but you know, uh, like I, when I come home, I'll tell my daughter, no, hang on, I'm going to hug mom first and give my, my wife a hug and kiss or whatever. And then yeah. hug my daughter. And I think, you know, some people will be like, oh, well, that's that's really messed up. And it's like, no, it, I think it makes her feel more secure that, oh, yeah. my parents love each other. 
and they you know and she'll come hug us while we're doing it too yeah it's family not, hugs come on yeah. so i love i love that you said that george because that's one thing okay. that i've been using on my daughter lately and not a, not all the time but when she says something like talks back to her mom i tell her like you don't talk to my wife that way yep it's not you don't exactly. talk to your mom that way you don't talk to my wife that way yes no one else on this planet would have permission to say that so i'm going to remind you <laughs> this is <Yep>. my wife <laughs> that's right yeah i think being very intentional about those words those wordings yeah. with your kids especially helps paint that picture of what real relationship looks like and um yeah. helps them have that security so thank you for that, that uh, final thoughts there david that was beautiful for sure where can people find you where's the best place to get in touch with you best place to get in touch is uh you can check out my website you can google me find me just about anywhere i'm on all social media i usually hang out on instagram um okay. if you uh, if, if anyone dms me on instagram just message the podcast and i'll actually open up in, and respond to you like just uh um <laughs> uh, I don't believe in the bots and I don't like having other people manage my social media. So it's actually me. It might take me a while to get back to you, but I will respond. I promise. <laughs> awesome. Well, we will put links to all of uh, the best places to reach you, David, in, in the description of this and uh, everywhere we post it, it'll be in there. So, thank you. Um, you know, I guess a final thing on that would be, uh, you know, how do people kind of go about wanting, if they're wanting to work with you in a professional sense, you know, how does that, what does that look like? Yeah, so in, in a professional capacity, if, if any man is interested in our community, our brotherhood, um, again, it's called The Ardent Man. Uh, I've got links in my bio. Uh, there's an application process that you go through an interview process to make sure that it's a good fit, it's aligned, and it makes sense. Uh, if someone's in business and they're wanting to explore a conversation, uh, just email me. Um, me or my team will get back with you and we'll set up a time to, to actually have a consult and, and discover, well, you know, it's called a discovery call, whatever you want, and uh, dive in to see if I'm even in a position to help because I tell everybody the same thing. Unless we have a conversation, I can't promise you that I can help you. I have no freaking idea. <laughs> and so it always is a conversation first and then um, just exploring it together and seeing if it makes sense. And so, um, yeah, easy peasy. Perfect. Well, David, I really enjoyed this. Man, I wish we had like five more hours to speak with you because uh, we'll do so a part two. Old. If you guys ever do a part two, we'll do it. Yeah, 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 like it. So much. I want to keep digging. Yeah, lots of layers. So, Good time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again for, for your transparency and uh, having the courage to share your story and, uh, you know, set the precedent for others to follow. And, um, you know, some men out there, if you're listening, um, we're probably all struggling with something very similar or whatever it is. It's the hardest thing you've faced so far in your life. Right. So for you, it may be the big boulder. So don't don't just uh, sit under it, reach yeah. out, get help. And, uh, you know, you heard it from David here in his story that, uh, it wasn't until he really accepted it and moved forward that he was able to kind of get things back on track and, and love himself, not just uh, have the act. So, David, thank you so much. All right, dads, enough talk. Let's get climbing that mountain. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes. We will see you in the next one.